Amen. One of the great things about being out of the country over the past week is that you get a break from uh, the news cycle. The only news I got to watch this week was in Spanish, and the only thing that uh, I heard that I understood was Coronavirus. Um, you know how dramatic Spanish-speaking television is, but I know some of y'all here are chronic news watchers. Uh, you watch the news really religiously, just every single thing that, that comes across, you've got to just be on top of all of it. I know some of y'all, you ladies maybe especially, are married to somebody who watches the news religiously, and you go to sleep every night with some guy yelling at Rachel Maddow, and I just want you to know you're in my prayers. And some of you don't know who Rachel Maddow is, so you don't get that joke. And if you don't know who she is, then you're probably happier and well adjusted than the rest of us. But I uh, used to be a chronic news watcher until I realized that almost every single day was the exact same thing. That depending on your source, you know, there may be a different spin to it, but it was always the same endless cycle of news stories kind of on repeat, right? Depending on the, the channel, the president is doing great, the president is doing terrible, um, there's a celebrity scandal, there's some kind of political disaster, there is some you know, new virus that's going to kill all of us. The stock market is up, the stock market is down, sports, and it's always every week, it's always the exact same stories. And so I just, you know, I just gave up. But if you haven't been paying attention, uh, there is in the middle of that constant drone of the news cycle, a story that keeps coming up over and over again. And that is that Christians around the world are dying in record numbers because of their faith in Jesus. You may not have realized that. But if you think about the news stories that you've heard over the past couple of years, you may recognize that that's true. Remember those Christians in Egypt that were beheaded on the beach? Remember the Christians in Iraq and Syria that had to flee and leave their homes because of the threat of ISIS? Remember last year there was a church in Sri Lanka that was bombed on Easter Sunday morning? All over the world, Christians are suffering because of their faith in Jesus. There are I believe an estimated 215 million Christians in the world today that live their lives in danger, which is about a quarter of the Christians in the world live their lives in danger because of their faith in Jesus. There are almost 250 Christians killed every month for the name of Jesus. That's happening in our world today. And yet that seems like a world away, doesn't it? In fact, from the way most of us live, that seems almost incomprehensible. Who would ever take their religion so seriously that they would ever follow it to the point where it would cost them their life? How would you ever take your spirituality so seriously that you would be willing to endure physical suffering, economic fallout, displacement from your home, even sexual violence or death upon you or your family because of your faith in Jesus? What is wrong with somebody that would do that? Maybe the question is, what is right with somebody that would do that? And what's wrong with the rest of us? Because I know for many of you here today, uh, we really, maybe I should say, we, we really don't take any of this this seriously, do we? The idea of being threatened for Jesus is foreign to us. In fact, the idea of even being uncomfortable following Jesus is absolutely foreign to most of us. We follow Jesus so things will get better. Surely we wouldn't follow Him and things would actually 
get worse. But because some of us maybe aren't really aware of what the Bible teaches about the hardships that come with following Jesus, we may already be at a place in our lives where we're willing to bend in one area regarding our testimony or bend in another area regarding our testimony and we don't realize that under enough financial pressure, under enough social pressure, under enough political pressure, where we have bent, we will break. And today, Jesus is going to show us from His Word as He addresses His disciples, That if we follow Him, we may very well be following Him into a life of persecution and a life of suffering. But He teaches us this important thought I want you to take with you as you leave here today. I believe it's a timely word from Scripture. And that is that following Jesus, He never never promised that it would be easy. He never promised that it would be easy. But He always promised it would be worth it. He never promised it would be easy. But He always promises it will be worth it. I want to show you this today in Matthew chapter 10. We're going to begin reading in verse number 16 and we will read to the end of the chapter. So if you're able, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God? Now this is a longer passage of Scripture, so if you need to stay seated, don't let that bother you. But Matthew chapter 10, verse number 16. The Word of God says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. or For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose. Seated this morning. As you come to Matthew chapter number 10, Jesus has called His disciples to Himself and He's sending them out into their first 
some among the nation of Israel. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is going to send them out as His apostles who will reach the world with the message of the Gospel. But here, He's just kind of letting them kick around the kiddie pool for a little bit. He's keeping them on a short leash as they go. But He's giving them some instructions before they go. And in the first few verses of this passage of Scripture, we read about who these men were, and then we read really what a sense of their mission was, to go and make much of Christ and the power of the Spirit. And we see that the mission of God has been to send Jesus to bring us the truth. And that if we are following this Jesus, then His mission overlays the mission of our lives in such a way that we live on mission for Jesus as missionaries, regardless of the context, taking the Gospel with us wherever we go. But Jesus also wants His disciples to understand that His life was a life marked with suffering. His life was a life marked with pain. His life was a life marked with betrayal and even hatred. And that if we really follow Jesus, then ultimately we will experience many of those same things. And that idea runs all throughout Matthew's Gospel. You think about Jesus in the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, even as just a baby, King Herod wanted Him dead as a baby. Jesus grows up and He's under scrutiny from religious leaders on both the theological left and the theological right. Looking and waiting for an opportunity to denounce Him. He is betrayed to death by one of His closest followers and dearest friends. Even the people of Israel cry out on the last day of His life, crucify Him. Away with Him. We will not have Him to reign over us. That's the life Jesus lived. He knew what it meant to be betrayed. He knew what it meant to suffer. He knew what it meant to hurt. He knew what it meant to be rejected. And Jesus warns the disciples and warns us here, if you follow me, you will face the same issue. So Jesus merely equips His disciples for that persecution that is to come here in Matthew chapter number 10. And what I want to do is I want us to go through this sermon together today. And I want to look at three themes that run through this sermon. They kind of, they kind of run through the sermon, go away, and then they kind of keep weaving their way back. And underneath each of those three, three themes, there are three principles that you and I need to understand if we really are going to understand that Jesus never promised following Him would be easy. Because He never did. You read Matthew chapter 10, there's nothing easy about this. But He does remind us at the end, it will be worth it. Jesus never promised it would be easy. But He does prepare His disciples. And that's the first theme that runs through this text, is the disciples are being prepared. Jesus begins in verse number 16, with a gripping picture, doesn't he? He says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, I'm not a farmer. I'm not an expert on sheep. I'm not an expert on wolves. But understand, that ain't a good deal for the sheep, is it? That's not to get the gazelles on National Geographic. It's not going to end well for them. It's like the sea lions on Shark Week. This is not where you want to be, is it? But Jesus is warning them, I'm sending you out. And you are in a world that is violent and angry and hurtful. But He gives them a principle here. As He reminds them, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves and you need to be harmless as doves but wise as serpents. And here's the principle He gives. The first one is, you don't always need to be right. You don't always need to be right. That's a weird figure of speech that Jesus gives to be harmless as doves but wise as serpents. What does it mean? It means that Christians should be smart. They should do the best that they can. They should be discerning. And they should be careful. But Christians never have a right to act in a way that they compromise their dignity. Or they compromise their integrity. Or they compromise their humility. 
But what happens to us, I think many times in our lives today, is that because we face so little actual persecution for following Jesus, that sometimes we get mean over anybody who disagrees with us about anything. So I want you to listen to me very, very carefully. You're not being persecuted for Jesus just because your first cousin is not going to vote for President Trump. That is not persecution for Jesus. But if somebody doesn't like our you know, cartoon picture of Jesus we share on Facebook, well, they must hate us and hate the gospel. And Lord, rain fire and brimstone down on top of their heads. We have in us this need to be right. This need to be vindicated. This need to prove that we are smarter than everybody else. That's why we're Christians. We're Christians because we know best. Because we're more moral and we're more ethical. And why doesn't the world pay attention to how smart and how moral and how ethical we are? Listen to me, church. We are not Christians because we are better than everybody else. If we are Christians, we are Christians because we realize before they did by the Spirit of God that we have a need. That we're worse than everybody else. And we found the help that they need. So we have no right to think that our calling as believers is to win arguments. Our calling as believers is not to win arguments. Our calling is to win hearts so that we would win the world. This delivers us from the need to be right. And I want you to know today that whether we're talking about persecution or any other area of life or in the church, mean is not a ministry. God has not called anybody to be a jerk for Jesus. Amen. But sometimes we want to be so right that we become angry or hateful or bitter. But Jesus says in verses 17 or 18 that there's a sense in which those that follow Him and take His name and are faithful to Him, they will never be right in the eyes of the world. Look at what He says. Beware of men, for they will, they will, He says, deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for My sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Jesus says to these men, He says, the day will come when you go on trial and they will beat you in their synagogues. The synagogue, of course, was the local place of worship. It was the center of life. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, it's going to so challenge and frustrate the status quo of the world you're in that you are going to face spiritual complications. There are going to be social complications. There's going to be political fallout. There is going to be fallout at every single level of your life. And so, friends, we should understand today that there's a sense that as God's people, the world is never going to look at us and think they are Christians because they're smart. They are Christians because they're moral. They are Christians because they're ethical. From the perspective of a committed non-believer today, you are a Christian because you're weak. Which I would probably agree with that. They would say you're a Christian because you're foolish. They would say you are a Christian because you are uneducated or because you are ignorant. That's the perspective they are going to take. And Jesus says you don't need to worry about being right in their eyes. Because their opinion is not the opinion that finally matters. So quit worrying about your need to be right. Why? Because as we're going to see in just a moment, the Lord has looked upon us in love and said, those rejected people who follow Jesus, those are my people. And if He loves us, then it doesn't matter if the world hates us. You don't always need to be right. But the second principle I think we find as we think about Jesus preparing His disciples is in verses 24 and 25. And that is, you should be like Jesus. You're not always going to be right, but you should be like Jesus. Now, if Christians are going to be persecuted, it makes me want to ask why. Because, like most of y'all, Christians have never been anything but good to me. Christians pray for me. They love me. They take care of me. Something's going on in my life. They text me and check on me. Most of us have had that experience. Christians make me deviled eggs at homecoming. What's not to like about Christians? Why, why would you not like a Christian? A true, faithful Christian. Why would you not like them? 
Look at what Jesus says, verses 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of Beelzebul, master of the house of Beelzebul, or Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? You see what the real issue is in the eyes of the world? The real issue is Christ-likeness. Jesus was not at home in this world. And if we are like Him, then the world will not have a home for us. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21, I think we maybe can get that verse. If the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. Jesus says, y'all remember that day back in Matthew chapter 10, I told y'all this? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If you believe what Jesus believed, if you love what he loved, if you value what he valued and hate what he hated, then you're just not going to fit in this world. You're just going to be out of step. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 12. He said that if we walk with Jesus, if we live godly lives in Christ Jesus, all of those that do, they will be persecuted. And so I read that verse and it bothers me. Because I'm not really persecuted. I'm not really persecuted. I don't know that the world really hates me. I can't think of anybody necessarily that hates me. There are a few people that don't like me. But I can't think of anybody in the world today that hates me. And so that makes me ask, and maybe we should ask ourselves, is there anything about me that is so much like Jesus that it challenges the world? Is there anything about me that's so much like Jesus that it confuses the world? Or that it convicts the world? Jesus says, and Paul says, if we follow Him, then we will bother the world. But it gives another principle. It's in verses 34 through 39. And that is, you can be in danger. And perfectly safe at the same time. If you follow Jesus, you can be in danger and be perfectly safe at the same time. Look at what he says in verses number 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I'm going to put that on my Christmas card next year. I have not come to bring peace, Jesus said, but a sword. For I have come to set again a man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Some of you are thinking that's not that unusual. But a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is a series of stunning statements. I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. Jesus says, I have come to sow reorient the affections and the love of your heart that you will love me more than the family that raised you and the family that you raised. And as you do, you're going to find that you fit in less and less and less. But if we really think about what we believe today as Christians, as shocking as this is even to us, it actually makes a lot of sense. Because we believe that Jesus changes people, right? And if Jesus is actually changing people, if He's making us different, well then, we're going to be different. And we're going to love different things and hate different things and be transformed to be more like Him and less like the family that raised us so that even the most important relationships in our lives pale in comparison to our relationship with Jesus. And there can naturally be tension. 
And then Jesus says that if we will not take up His cross and follow Him, we are not worthy of Him. And to the average first century Jew that heard Jesus say that, that would have been an appalling statement. You know, we wear crosses around our necklaces. We get crosses tattooed on our biceps. We have exploding crosses in our church. And so we don't think about what it would actually be like to see... You know, we can't ever preach against churches that have smoke machines and fireworks again, can we? Like, that's, that's over. We have no idea what it would be like to actually witness somebody be crucified. But everybody who heard Jesus say this, they knew exactly what that was like. There were periods during the Roman occupation of Israel where they crucified so many Jewish men that they ran out of trees. It would not be uncommon for people to walk along stretches of highway, and especially in Jerusalem, and to see crosses with people dying on them or dead on them on the side of the road like telephone poles. And the thought of Jesus saying, you've got to be ready to face that if you're going to follow me or you're not worthy of me, that is incredible, isn't it? Jesus says, if you don't value me more than the future you plan for yourself, if you don't value me than your, than your hopes of success, than your dreams and your ambitions, than your most important relationships, then you're not worthy of me. And so we may look at this and think, well, who in the world does Jesus think He is to tell us that? And this is the key to understanding what He's saying. The key to understanding is He thinks He is the Son of God who entered our world for the purpose of taking the cross. That He has taken up a cross out of His love for us. And He has laid down His life for us. And what did He get in return? Not much. He got us. And He says, if you lay down your life and take up your cross, what do you get? You get Him. And Jesus says, I'm calling you to die as a Savior who has already died. I'm calling you to lay down your life as a God who laid down His life, saying, pursue me and know me, and I will love you. And Jesus says, if you do that, then you are perfectly safe in me. Because at the cross, all of your sins were paid for. All of your past was washed away. And no matter how the world may threaten you, you are perfectly safe in Jesus. And so Jesus says, beware. If you follow me, the closer you get to me, the more dangerous it will be for you in this world. But the closer you get to me, the safer you're going to be. There's the preparation of the disciples. But Jesus also talks about the priorities of the disciples. If He's sending them out as sheep in the middle of wolves, what are the values they're supposed to take with them? Well, the first value I think is pretty obvious in verse number 22. It's the value of faithfulness. He says, you will be hated for all, or by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You can't read Matthew chapter 10 without concluding that Jesus is much more interested in the faithfulness of His people than He is the comfort of His people. And He makes a statement there at the end of Matthew 10, 22 that has caused a terrible amount of consternation for a lot of really sincere Baptists. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, what in the world does that mean? Does that mean that if, if somehow... I'm not as faithful as I ought to be that I can lose my salvation. Well, let me just go ahead and tell you that if it's up to you to keep it, you're going to lose it anyway. All right? You don't have a hope. If there's any part of this that depends on your works, you're sunk. Period. If there's some sin you could commit that Jesus did not die on the cross for, you're going to hell anyway. So don't worry about it. All right? Now, we believe as Baptists, without reservation, without apology, in the eternal security of the believer. That when Jesus forgives somebody, He is not going to renege on His promises to them. He's not going to cancel that forgiveness no matter what. When Jesus, think about this, when Jesus changes somebody's heart and they believe in Him, He's not going to change their heart again to make them lost again. That's not the way any of this works. He's promised that if we believe, He is faithful to us 
no matter what. We believe without reservation in the eternal security of the believer. But that is not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about a different doctrine. He's talking about the perseverance of the saints, which amplifies our understanding of the eternal security of the believer. We might say it this way. True faith. True faith in Jesus saves for good. We should say Jesus saves for good. But faith in Jesus saves for good and it saves forever. But true faith in Jesus will not walk out on Jesus no matter what. What Jesus is saying here is that if our faith walks out, if our faith walks away, if our faith abandons Him or denies Him, even in the midst of persecution, if we walk away from Him, if our faith fails, Jesus says our faith was not genuine. This is something He would teach about in Matthew chapter 13 as He talked about people responding to the Word of God with joy, but eventually walking away from the faith. Why do they do that? Because their faith was not genuine. And so when do we consider the weighty reality of this? Jesus says there will be people that will hear the Gospel. And He even uses the word believe in Matthew 13. And He says they will believe the Gospel. But He says after life gets hard because of persecution or stress or whatever, they will walk away. Jesus says there's a faith that looks a whole lot like saving faith, but it does not last because it is not real. And so I want to introduce you today to a word that you need to know. You may have heard it before, but you may have never heard it defined. It's the word apostate. Or the word apostasy. An apostate is someone who apostatizes or commits apostasy. That's somebody who for a while claims to follow Jesus, claims to believe in Jesus, and then for whatever reason, walks away from Him. And I want to introduce you to that word apostasy. And the word apostate, because some of you may be apostates one day. Some of you may apostatize one day. There are people that used to sit in this sanctuary that would raise their hands and take up the offering and teach Sunday school classes that are now apostates. Because they walked away from Jesus. And I want you to be warned today about this serious warning. Because some of you will not follow Jesus when it gets hard. Some of you will do the math in your head and the calculus will not add up and you will determine Jesus is not worth it and you will walk away from Jesus when life gets hard. And I know that because you're not faithfully walking with Jesus now when life is easy. And you will apostatize and walk away from Him and you will not be saved eternally because your faith in Jesus is not genuine. And if that worries you today, then what you need to do is you need to come and say, Lord, give me genuine faith that perseveres, that will walk with you no matter what, that sees the worth and the value of Jesus as being greater than life itself and the world itself. Jesus says our first value is faithfulness. The second one again, verses 24 and 25, is Christ-likeness. This kind of persecution and suffering is not something that any of us would embrace, is it? We're not just going to say, hey, you don't want to live this life of rejection and pain and hurt and hardship, but why do we do that? Why? Would we do this? Because this is what true discipleship is. True discipleship is Christ-likeness. That's all that it is. And it's being Jesus that earns us the hatred and the scorn of the world. But that's what it means to follow Him. That's what Jesus is talking about in verse number 24. That We're not supposed to be above Him, and we wouldn't be anyway, but it is enough for the disciple to be like His teacher. If the goal is Christ-likeness, then eventually there's going to be tension and there's going to be pain in our hearts and in the world. But there's also a positive element to this. And I think the positive element to this here is that if we're being truly persecuted for the name of Jesus, that is an incredible compliment for an unbelieving world to give us. Because they are saying, you are so much like Jesus that we can't stand to be around you. And we're mixed up as Christians today. We think that the best compliment that the world can give us is that we've got good music at the church or that we've got good preaching. The best compliment they can give us is, you know, that we're not judgmental. The best compliment anybody can ever give us is that we're like Jesus. 
Period. Jesus says if that's the value, there may be pain. But the third value He gives us, the third priority is that of boldness in verses 26 and 27. He says, don't fear. Don't fear people. He says that several times in Matthew 10. There's nothing covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will be, not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Being rejected makes us skittish. Nobody wants to go through life saying, you know, nobody's going to like me. Seems like the people, really, even who are liked the least, are the most oblivious. You ever notice that? The people that nobody really likes are the people that think everybody loves them. You ever notice that? Nobody, nobody, I'm not talking about anybody in particular, so y'all can tell it in mind, but nobody, nobody says, man, I look forward to being rejected, I look forward to being hated, I can't wait to be killed for Jesus. Folks, I don't want to be killed, dying is bad for you, I'm allergic to it, I don't want that. But Jesus says we should embrace a loud and a proud and outspoken attitude for the name of Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. When he talks about in these verses, uh, we're proclaiming on the housetops what he's whispered in private. See, at this point in the life of Jesus, and at this point in the ministry of the disciples, there were a lot of things about Jesus that were still unknown. There was a lot of mystery and a lot of confusion about who he was. And Jesus is explaining that to the disciples in private, and he says, your responsibility is to go and take what you've learned in private and shout it to the public. Your responsibility is boldness. But you've got to understand, not all of these disciples were naturally bold men. Some of them, most of them were very timid. Not all of them were outspoken. Not all of them were extroverted. Nobody trained them to do this because nobody had ever done it before. They had a boldness that was clearly supernatural in origin. They had a boldness that was not the result of their temperament or their training or their personality or their experiences or their background. They had a boldness that was a supernatural gift of the Spirit of God given to them so that they could proudly and loudly proclaim the message that had saved their lives. And I know that because they prayed for it in Acts chapter 4. Verse number 29, they came together in a time of persecution as a church and they asked Jesus to make them bold. Folks, most of us aren't really bold people when it comes to speaking up for Jesus, are we? We're just not. It doesn't come easy and it doesn't come natural to us. It's awkward and it's weird. And if people really are hateful towards us, it makes it that much harder. But have you ever come to Jesus and asked Him for boldness? Have you ever came to Him and prayed honestly and said, Lord, you know I'm shy if you are. You know I'm introverted if you are. Or maybe you're not, but you're just afraid. Lord, you know I'm afraid. Lord, you know I'm awkward and weird. I mean, everybody else knows it. The Lord knows it. Lord, this is who I am. But Lord, I want to be bold for Jesus. He was not ashamed of me. I don't want to be ashamed of Him. Lord, make me bold in a way that is clearly the result of Your work in my life. Jesus shows us the priorities of His disciples. But He finishes today. The third theme in this sermon is He gives promises to the disciples. He sends them out into the world, deploying them into a war zone. But He gives them three promises that I think would carry them through. The first is in verses 19 through 20. The promise that God is with them. He says, God will be with you. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Jesus is talking about His disciples testifying in His name. Now understand, He's not talking about testifying in church. He's not talking about testifying the way we think about testifying when God heals our gallbladder and we stand up and say, Lord, you know, thank you for touching my gallbladder. He's talking to people who are going to be in literal legal trouble for their faith in Jesus. Who are going to be on a witness stand and who are going to have to explain themselves to a judge or to some kind of civil authority. Jesus is talking about legal 
testimony. And he says, when that happens, don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't be afraid of that moment because I will be with you and my Spirit will speak through you. Now, let me stop right here and let me just tell you, this verse has nothing at all to say to lazy preachers. This verse has nothing at all to say to Sunday school teachers who are too trifling to read their lesson until 10 o'clock on Saturday night. If your approach to teaching Sunday school is, well, the Lord said not to worry about it, and I'm just going to let Him fill my mouth in that moment. Come see me this week and I will fire you because that is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is giving a specific promise to people who are persecuted. And He says, in that moment, I will be with you, I will speak through you, I will not abandon you. And I'm thankful for that promise. Because even though I've never been persecuted, and even though I've never really suffered greatly for the name of Jesus, I know that today, all around this world, I have brothers and sisters in Christ who are in prison. I have brothers and sisters in Christ who have been exiled from their communities and from their families. I have brothers and sisters in Christ today who are suffering greatly in the Lord. And if I could preach to them, I would love to be able to tell them in a language they can understand, Jesus is not abandoning, abandoning you in your prison. He's there with you. Jesus is not walked away from you because you're not meeting in a church, but because you're meeting in the woods. Jesus has not turned His back on you because your government or your family has turned its back on you. Jesus is always with His people. And I would love to tell them that even in those moments of persecution, it's sometimes in those moments that God's people are the most effective. Thousands of years ago, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That in this paradoxical, upside-down way in which the God who knows and governs all things governs this world, it's sometimes when Christians suffer the most that they do the most good. That when they're being burned at the stake, that's when the gospel advances. That when their churches are raided and shut down, that's when people are brought to Christ in great numbers. That many times it is the suffering of God's people and the revival of the gospel that go hand in hand. Jesus says, God will use you when you suffer. And that's true for you too. Even if you're never put in prison, even if you're never separated from your family, if you're sitting in a high school cafeteria and you're arguing with a 15-year-old atheist who doesn't even know how to spell the word Nietzsche, God is with you. And He will use you and give you the words that you need to say and that they need to hear. If you have to make decisions in your job that are going to hurt your career, the Lord is with you. He will give you peace and He will make you useful. God is with you. The second promise Jesus gives is that God values you. Verses 29 through 33, Jesus gives these familiar and comforting words as He asks, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? He says, are not one of them, but not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? He said, Jesus, Jesus said, look around. He said, you've got these sparrows out here that are worthless. Basically worthless. They're less than, they're, they're two for a penny. I mean, how worthless can you get? You can't even just buy one. You've got to get a matching set. But Jesus says, the Lord knows Everything that happens to those birds, as valueless as they are, how much more does your Father, your Father, value you and know you, even the very hairs of your head? And I've used up all my ball jokes here, so I can't you know, make fun of those that don't have hair for the Lord's number, but He says the Lord knows everything about you, and He values you, and He cares for you. And so yes, you may be rejected by the world, but if you're loved by the One who matters the most, does it ultimately matter? Does it ultimately matter if the world rejects you? And Jesus says, no, absolutely not. So yes, we have fear. It's not easy to be rejected for Jesus. It's not easy for people to turn their backs on us. How do we do it? How do we get rid of fear? You don't get rid of fear. You, know, you don't just tell yourself, alright, well, I'm going to be brave now and I'm not going to be afraid. That's not the way our hearts work. 
The only way you can get rid of fear is to find something bigger to be more afraid of. Which is what Jesus says in these verses. Do not fear what man can do to you, but fear the Lord who can take your body and your soul and throw both of them into hell. Say, Brother Jesse, that's not very encouraging. Well, it should be. It should be encouraging as you understand that really, eternally, a man or humans or a government, they can't do a single thing to you. If God is really present with us in persecution, and He uses us in times of suffering, then all that any person could ever do to you is, number one, they can drive you closer to Jesus. Number two, they can make you more useful for Jesus. Or finally, the worst and last thing they can do is they can send you to meet Jesus. That's all they can do to you. But Jesus says we have a God who is able to judge and we should care more about what He thinks of us. Here's the way I would tell this to you. Because even though we are not persecuted as these disciples were, we're also not as bold as they were, are we? Even though it would be easier for us to be as bold as they were. We care so much what people think about us because we think so little about how God cares for us. We care so much about how people think of us because we think so little about how God cares for us. What Jesus says here is incredible. He says, yes, there is a God who is able to cast body and soul into hell, but that God is your Father. The one who is able to destroy you is the one who has saved you. Friends, is that not the heartbeat of the Gospel message? That the one who is able to destroy us has put His love on us and has saved us. And so Jesus says, if you acknowledge Me before men, I will acknowledge you before My Father. But if you deny Me before men, I will deny you before My Father. If somehow in our hearts we haven't grasped that our security and identity is rooted in Christ, and we're not outspoken and we're not faithful and we're more concerned about what people think than about what God has said about us in Jesus, then somewhere there's a hole in our understanding of the Gospel that is fatal. And Jesus says, as we deny Him, we're giving proof that we don't really know Him. That we don't really understand Him. That we're not really living in light of who He is and what He said. And if that happens, Jesus said that He will deny us. And really, which is more important? To be accepted and to be loved today? Or to be accepted eternally? Which is the third principle I would point out to you from this text. That's verses 40 through 42. Jesus rewards us. What's the promise? The promise is that Jesus rewards us. What Jesus does throughout this entire sermon is He is expanding the horizons of the disciples and He's saying to them, your life is bigger than just the few minutes you have in this world. It's a much needed reminder for us that our, our lives are never, for any of us, believers and unbelievers, our lives are never just about the time we are born to the time that we die. But we are eternal creatures made to orient ourselves around a relationship to our Maker. And if we accept Him, then we are going to live forever with Him. But if we reject Him, we are going to be punished forever by Him. And Jesus says, for those of you that are walking with Me, for those of you that are being faithful, you've got to understand there are eternal implications to even the smallest things you do. Did you see that at the very end of Matthew 10? He said, if you even give a cup of cold water to a disciple in My name, to a little child, you give a cup of cold water, He said, I take note of that. That everything you do has eternal implications. I think maybe this is what so many of us fail to really understand. Maybe this is why we panic when we run out of toilet paper. Because we don't understand. That these, this life is eternal. We don't see beyond what's right in front of us. But Jesus calls us to see beyond what's right in front of us. And understand that we are eternal people living for an eternal 
destiny. That God's people are always more than what the world says about them. They are always going to be more than what history may or may not record about them. They are what God says about them. And the God who loves them is taking notes of everything they do and of everything the world does. Which I think is the key to understanding this passage. And I think it's the key to understanding the most confusing verse in this passage. Did any of y'all get any heartburn when you read verse number 23? Let's look at this together. Matthew chapter 10, verse number 23. Because when I looked at this preparation for this message, I thought, what? You ever, read across, you ever come across something in the Bible and you think, what, Lord, are you talking about? Look at what he says. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Now that makes perfect sense. Amen, Jesus. Get out of Dodge. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now what in the world does that mean? Did Jesus show up and somebody forgot to tell us what? Are we out of the loop? What, what is he talking about? And I tried to figure out exactly what this means. And there's a lot of different ways you can take this verse. And I'm not telling you that my take on it is uh, by any means infallible or perfect, so you take it or leave it. There are some people that think that Jesus is talking about the day of Pentecost. He's saying that before you make it through all the towns of Israel, I will come through my Spirit and fill you and use you. Fair enough. There are some people that take this to be the coming of Christ, as it were, in judgment on Jerusalem when Jerusalem fell to the Romans in 70 A.D. Before you make it through all the nations sharing the gospel, I will come and I will judge the nation of Israel for rejecting me. I think that's reasonable. Um, then there are some people that, that just kind of take it a little bit more simplistically and they say, hey, life's going to be hard. Jesus is coming back. You hang tough. It ain't going to last long. I like that. I like that. It may be hard, but thank God, church, it's only for a while. No matter what it is, one day He will come and it will be over. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here, as true as it may be. And I think, I say that because that of Jesus describing Himself in verse 23 as the Son of Man. The phrase Son of Man connects to a specific Old Testament passage. In Daniel chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14. Let's read this, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, I believe that Jesus in Matthew 10, 23 is connecting himself to that verse. And if you'll notice in that passage that the Son of Man, which is Jesus, comes to the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, and he presents himself to him and he receives from God dominion and glory and a kingdom that will not pass away, that all the nations of the world would serve him. In that verse of Scripture, the Son is coming to the Father. And Jesus is saying to the disciples here, this event is still in your future. But folks, that event is in our past. Because that happened when our resurrected Lord Jesus ascended back to his Father and sat down at the right hand of power. So what, what, so what is that, Brother Jesse, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, if I'm right, it means this. Jesus is saying, guys, this is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You're going to be rejected. But understand that I win. That's what he's saying. He's saying, guys, if you know your Bible, you know that a son of man is going to go to, or to use the Bible's where he's going to come to, 
the Ancient of Days. And that Ancient of Days is going to give Him power and authority and dominion and a kingdom that will never pass away. And all the kingdoms of, of the earth will bow before this Son. Jesus is reminding them, guys, I am that Son of Man. And this will happen. And I can say to us today, it has happened. Are there periods in the life of the church that are hard? Sure. Are there going to be times when you have to suffer? Absolutely. What is the confidence that we have? The confidence we have is that Jesus Christ has the last word. That people who hate the gospel never have the last word. That people who hate Jesus, one day they will meet Him and they will bow to Him. That God's people may suffer, but they suffer with and for a resurrected and reigning Lord Jesus. The hope that we have and the reason that we suffer and the reason that we serve is that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And that's what this message Jesus preaches in Matthew 10 is about. Now, today, it's hard to give an invitation to a message like this. As our musicians come and we prepare for our invitation, it's hard because few of us are being persecuted. If you were being persecuted, I would tell you to come and pray for strength and boldness to be faithful. But few of us are. Many of us are comfortable and our lives are easy. And we think that is a blessing from God in one sense it is, but in another sense it's almost a curse. Because it makes it so easy to walk away from Him. It may be good for some of you to come and say, Lord, I know my heart and I know I'm not bold. I know I'm not really faithfully serving You now and life's easy. And Lord, I want You to change me and I want You to make me, Lord, into the person You'd have me to be so that my faith will endure to the end. But I would also add this. We have in our world today millions of Christians that are suffering because of their faithfulness to Jesus. We have brothers and sisters in Christ that we will never know in this life, but will be with us around the throne in heaven that are hurting, that are hungry, that are in prison, that are being lied to, that are being forced into difficult manual labor, that are separated from their families, sexually tortured, and any number of things you could imagine, all because they love Jesus and He loves them. The least we can do is pray for them. The least we can do is lift up the persecuted church and pray that God would be near them and keep them faithful. So as we stand together today and have our invitation, if you need to come and say, Lord, make me bold, do that. But I would invite you to come today and pray for those believers that really are suffering, those that will die today because of the name of Jesus. I'm going to invite you to come while we sing this great song.